0: sick of talking points from the extremes. If you would rather hear about ways America could get along, then you're listening to your new favorite guide from the political void, also known as the middle of America politics. Let's join our host for an entertaining look at politics. Here's Craig Allen!
1: We welcome one and all. Thank you again for joining us today. We want to thank our announcer, Will J. He is doing such a fantastic job. You are listening to the podcast with the goal of bringing America back together. We love this country. We are thankful to be Americans. On today's program, we will examine the election, where we are at, with the presidential race, other important races, in our new segment, the race, the polls, and the political trolls. And we will look at our second amendment, what it means for gun ownership in this country, why we are having so many mass shootings, what is behind the gun control arguments, and where the parties stand. In our newest edition of Poli for the Normal Guy, Howdy. we will profile an American musician who does not get enough credit for helping change the 20th century <gasps> in our Great American Heroes feature. And who is our president? Dope. Is it Joe Biden? Or is it someone secretly pulling his string? If it is, could it be an organization You would never guess. Crazy! We will look at these questions with a little fun in our honorary Weird Al tinfoil hat nut job hot off the presses conspiracy theory of the week as we hope to explore who this might be. And is Trump trying to pull off some Bidenisms? In our honorary Dan Quill moment of the week, we will find out. So stay with us as we look both seriously and not so seriously at the (laughs) politics and issues of our American political system on lefty-loosey, righty tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. I am Craig Allen, that Texan, and I thank you all across America for joining me. And we will get right into our first portion now. Happy A Abby. new segment we call The Race, the polls, and the Political Trolls. And Mike Pence announced that he would drop out of the Republican primary race this past week. And this is pushing the Republican primary into a tighter race, for second place right now. The variance for second place differs between the early states. Second place really matters. In some states, it's Ron DeSantis right now holding onto that spot. And in others, it is Nikki Haley. I would say it is very, very important to find out who is going to get that second place spot. And the polls are all over the place and showing who that's going to be. But primarily, it's just those two candidates. Looking into the future past 2024 into 2028, whoever winds up in second place in this Republican primary may be the front runner for the 2028 presidential race. Otherwise, if it's a strong second place candidate and power coalesces to that candidate fast enough if enough of the other candidates drop out, Trump's nomination could be in doubt. (gasps) If there's still infighting though, and second place is a big fight all the way through the primary, then Trump could cruise to victory. Haley is coming on strong though. Watch this. But DeSantis has spent more than $30 million in just four states, South Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada, and Iowa. And these are the first four states that will vote in the Republican primaries. But he has not made much strides in attacking Trump. And he's not pushing back Haley. Haley's catching up to him, even though she's not spending like he is. Trump has spent $27 million on videos specifically targeting DeSantis. And this, I think, is what is giving Haley some of these inroads. She has also performed well in the debates. That's helped her out, too. Haley speaks more like a general election candidate than a primary candidate. And somehow, she's still catching up in the Republican primary. So this is political science here. Generally, in primaries, Uh you will hear... Candidates become much more partisan, much more right or left leaning, depending on the primary that they're in. They usually don't take more general stands like they do when they get to the general election, where they lean more to the middle. They become much more hyper-partisan. Haley has gotten away with moving up in the polls and yet sounding more like a general election candidate. Now, what has hurt Haley and DeSantis and really all of the challengers on both sides to both Trump and Biden is the war in Israel and some of the pro Hamas demonstrations here. They've taken away attention from them, taken away attention from the campaign. And any time you have challengers in a campaign, they want the attention on the campaign. Having something else happening in the world helps the leaders, helps the people who are in charge. Having attention on the campaign is only good for the challengers. That's the way elections work. In elections where it's really tight, it really helps the challenger if the election really focuses down on the main candidate and on their goals and really starts putting pressure and attention on them. So polls have shown some tightening in Iowa, South Carolina, and New Hampshire. The primary fight will get interesting on the Republican side if a clear second place candidate pushes ahead in these first three to four primary battles. If you get a consistent winner in those first four, if let's say Ron DeSantis winds up winning in those first four and Haley either drops out or drops by the wayside and Scott drops out and some of the others drop out, you will see a different Republican race. If it's Haley, DeSantis, Scott, just different ones win in those first four races and it's all over the place by the time you get to the end of those first four, Trump is probably in good shape to win this nomination, hands down. But there's some interesting looks into Trump supporters that some of the polling has been looking at they can really be divided into three camps there are the hardened trump supporters who will back him no matter what and that will never change this is about 30 to 40 percent of his supporters there's roughly another third that could be peeled off depending on the situation these are people who voted for him once or twice but either his rhetoric or his scandals or the fact that he's getting older or maybe that he's just generally unelectable have started to make them think twice about voting for him. And some of them are starting to look at Haley and DeSantis. Um, some of his gaps, some of his further problems, his court issues have started to peel them away. Uh, then there's the last 25% of his supporters. These are just basically bare hanger honors, <laughs> is what I like to call them. That's not a political science term. These people could probably break off for almost any reason. A recent Iowa poll shows only 63% of Trump supporters have made up their mind there to vote for him. And even some of them could be influenced otherwise. Many of these have DeSantis as their second choice. When you look at polling in Iowa, that is very key because the Iowa primary works very different than some of the other primaries in other places. That's for a whole other show to try to explain how it works there. But you can convince each other and move people around and you vote several times and it just can make things go crazy and change.
0: Yes, With Haley next,
1: Scott third, this could make things interesting in Iowa. Another poll shows that 16% of Republicans in Iowa might consider voting for Biden or another third party candidate. There's also the never Trump bucket there that would also consider voting for DeSantis and also for Haley. So DeSantis might be in better shape in Iowa than most people think. Let's look at the Democratic side now. As featured on a program a few weeks ago, Democrat Dean Phillips from Minnesota has thrown in his hat for the Democrat nomination. This is crucial because it's gonna get Biden to some sort of table. This is the way I look at it. It could show he can still run because he's got somebody to run against. He could start pushing against him. He could start saying some things. It could show that he's more presidential than some people think. It may not, though. So, yes! And this is what his anger Democrats. It can make him look older because this guy's so much younger. It can make him look weaker because this guy's got some energy. I really liked what he said. I featured him on this program a few weeks ago. Or what it could do is it could be a stunner. Ho, ho, ho! Phillips could... Just take it away from him. A few really surprising polls have shown Biden lagging big time in some places like New York. Trump, he's much closer there than anyone ever expected. It shows Biden could be in trouble if the Democrats split and do not rally to Biden. If some of them jump off and head towards the Phillips bandwagon, this could spell trouble for him early. And now with the Israeli war, some radicals far left... Progressives and Muslims are really mad at him over this war. They are siding with the Palestinians. This could put him in a bind in the primaries, as he might need to go on the offensive. Congressman Phillips is not well known. Oh. As some have even said they had to Google him in Congress. This will help Biden and make it easier on him. But there are those in his party that are just looking for another answer. (gasps) Biden's presidency has been very progressive, far more progressive than most people think. He passed the CHIPS Act, which helped domestic semiconductor research. He's passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which really, frankly helped investment in climate and energy. That was more of an energy act than it was an inflation reduction act. And the bipartisan infrastructure law, which helped with transportation. Now this will help with investment in our infrastructure. But some liberals have actually compared Biden to FDR because of these, and they really thought Biden was safe. But some of FDR's acts proved vital and successful right away. And FDR was a wartime president. Wartime presidents are always helped by a marked high approval numbers than your average president. One interesting poll that has come out shows that when voters are comparing Biden and Trump and they both say they are too old, Biden is heavily preferred, (laughs) 61% to Trump, only 13%. So Biden, frankly, maybe should make his campaign about age. But let's get real. (laughs) If Biden were to make his campaign about age, is that really gonna help him? Have we seen him slip going up the stairs to Air Force One? Have we seen his gaps? Have we heard his blunders that we featured here on this program? I go back to one of my favorite all-time politicians, President Ronald Reagan, when talking about age. He was set to be re-elected as the oldest president in history in 1984. walter Mondale was facing him in a debate there were questions swirling about reagan's age all during this election campaign reagan was faced with the fact that he was going to be re-elected as the oldest president ever and a moderator in the debate asked him if he was too old to be president with a straight face ronald reagan answered I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. Literally, the campaign was over at that moment. It was the way Reagan delivered the line. It's the way he thought up the line. It's the way he looked at the audience as he delivered the line this is not going to be the same case for biden biden could not deliver that line he could not do it in such a way and he does not have reagan's energy that he had during that campaign i think biden's goose could be cooked and if it is he could have coattails down to the senate election and in those elections coming up been analyzing crunching the numbers overall right now we're sitting at 51 democrats in the senate 49 republicans in the senate but one of those senators for the democrats is a fairly conservative senator he kind of sits in the middle and that's joe manchin somebody else we've featured on the program his job is in trouble to a republican in fact there are 34 senate seats up for re-election during this next cycle about 20 of those are considered safe just depending on how you look at it three or four of those though i look at as being not necessarily safe because they don't have incumbents running and when you don't have an incumbent running in a race it could get crazy you can't ever tell what exactly is going to happen and some states are not as blue like New York right now, New York's looking a little weird. And then some states are sort of changing, some of their infrastructure's changing. The remaining races that I'm looking at, the other 14 could bring a challenge. Only two of them are held by Republicans right now. Rick Scott in Florida and Ted Cruz in Texas. And those still look somewhat safe. If you look at a roundup of polling right now, And if you look at all the states that are listed off there, I would give the Republicans a pretty good chance of getting anywhere from 52 to 54 seats in the Senate. And I would say probably a minimum of 51 right now. If Trump or whoever gets the Republican nomination wins, then it could be even more than that. And I definitely think the Republicans have a good chance of keeping the House and not only keeping it but building on their majority i think the republicans definitely will hold texas and florida i think the republicans can pick up seats in the senate in west virginia arizona montana ohio pennsylvania and wisconsin they can that doesn't mean they will but they can even if they pick up four of those seats they still get the majority i even think we need to look at tim Kaine in virginia He may be more susceptible than some people think. Some people think his seat is fairly safe. They encouraged him to run. He thought about not running. Republicans just won the gubernatorial race there in 2021 in a big upset. Early polls are showing the race as a toss-up already. In fact, polls in Virginia are closer than those even in Pennsylvania. In any case, Republicans will be defending 12 seats. Democrats will be defending 22. This puts all the money on the Democrats having to spread their money much thinner Ah! and when you have to spread your war chest thinner this makes it more difficult to defend your candidates so in conclusion with Trump or Haley leading in most polls versus Biden Republicans are in the catbird seat right now overall if you look at it they have the chance to win the Senate they have the chance to win the House and at this point right now Trump's starting to pull ahead in some of the uh, polling for president and even if it is DeSantis or Haley they still look good Versus Biden in polling. In fact, Haley looks even better than Trump or DeSantis does. Next, coming up, we'll be talking about guns, gun control, and the Second Amendment, and what does that all mean for you and for all of us in our poli sci for the normal guy segment. So please stay with us through the break oh, and don't go anywhere. Pretty. We'll be right please? back. Bye. are back. Thank you again for taking a moment to join us today for this program. Please take a moment to like it, or to tell someone about it or just to invite a friend to listen with you. Let's go back to the old days. Sit down in front of your iPad, iPod, I something. Well, sit down in front of something and listen to our show. And sit down with a friend and talk about the issues. Talk about what you've heard. And please let us know if you like it. Make a comment. But thank you again for listening. I call this show Lefty, Lucy, Righty, Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle and I do feel like the Texan caught in the middle a lot. And this is a situation where I do feel a little bit caught in the middle because we're talking guns, gun control, and where we are at in this country with gun violence. We've had some terrible mass shootings, including the really awful mass shooting that just occurred in Maine. And I prepared this show to talk about this well before this mass shooting occurred in Maine. So in today's poli for the normal guy portion of the program, we are discussing gun ownership, Draw. the inherent right granted to us in this country by the constitution in the second amendment. Yeah. The second amendment states a well-regulated militia is guaranteed to us, being necessary to the security of a free state. We also have the right of the people to keep and bear arms. <laughs> and it shall not be infringed and the courts have ruled that that shall not be infringed means it shall not be infringed by Congress. In other words, Congress cannot make laws infringing our rights to keep and bear arms and this has been litigated and in fact it's been litigated even fairly recently. The Supreme Court's decision in the District of Columbia versus Hiller in 2007 where Washington DC had regulations governing the ownership and use of firearms. They had several laws. One law generally barred the registration of most handguns. It also kept people from keeping them loaded. A Third law prohibited persons from carrying an unlicensed firearm. In 2003, six D.C. residents challenged these as unconstitutional. No. And in particular, the residents contended that the Second Amendment provides an individual a right to possess functional firearms that are readily accessible to be used, such as for self-defense in the home. The challenge made it to the Supreme Court, and in a 5-4 decision, the court concluded that the Second Amendment does provide an individual the right right to keep and bear firearms you betcha the majority arrived at this conclusion after undertaking an extensive analysis of the founding era meaning of the words in the second amendment's preferatory clause talking about a well-regulated militia you can't have a well-regulated militia if they don't have guns And the Operative Clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, not be infringed. If the militia can't have guns, well, the people can't have guns. They applied that interpretation of the D.C. law, and the court concluded that the district's ban on handguns was unconstitutional. And the reason I bring up this case in particular, the court essentially ruled you must allow citizens to possess firearms. And it really removed a lot of the controls that could be added in legally. In order to put gun control into effect we may need to pass a constitutional amendment Mm, 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 to ban mm, whatever mm. controls you want to put on those firearms. I think most people who are arguing for gun control want to ban semi-automatic weapons or some kind of assault rifles. But if you look at the arguments that they're making, such as the one made by Michael J. Spivey, the professor of cognitive science at Cal. He says, quote, hunting rifles and shotguns are useful for killing non-human animals under appropriate circumstances. Shotguns and pistols are useful for home defense. When it comes to mass shootings, they are not the problem. No, Those are the kinds of guns that most other countries have in abundance and those countries are not awash in gun deaths. But you get into trouble with this from a legal perspective. You also don't have much to argue about from other perspectives. But are automatic weapons really behind our problems? Let's look at gun violence. The US ranks 20th globally in firearm mortality. But if you take five South American countries, add it to the US, we equate to half of the world's firearms deaths. More than Canada, Europe, and Australia combined. Since the 60s, those numbers have climbed. While acts of mass violence really only account for 2% of firearm deaths, they really make everyone stressed. Yes, They cause communities to feel unsafe. 60% of gun deaths though, are really related to suicides. Around 35% are related to murders. (gasps) 95% of those suicides, even though there's guns involved, there's also drugs and or alcohol involved. Most mass shootings are actually done with non automatic weapons, believe it or not. So, banning any type of automatic weapon will not necessarily stop mass shootings. If you look into data, the guns of choice of 190 incidents dating back to 1966, and 80% of attacks, at least one handgun was used, while 28% used semi automatic assault rifles like AR 15s of those shooters who used an assault weapon, 73% still also carried a handgun. That has begun to change. If you look back to 2010, 34% of incidents involved an assault rifle. And if you look at the incidents in just the last three years, 59% have involved assault rifles. So what do mental health experts think? Because that's where I would go next. Is it the guns or is it the mental health of the individual? Mental health experts think it's not the individual, It's the prevalence of guns. It's that there are guns everywhere. And someone who's willing to do something bad, they're thinking, oh, I'm going to do something bad. Oh, there's a gun. I'm going to go get it and go do something bad. They say that most mass shootings are done by individuals with attitude problems or some other problems, not necessarily mental health problems. Once they see there's a gun, they're just going to go act and do what they're going to do. They've made the point that we are discriminating against people with mental health issues by accusing mass shooters of having mental health problems. But what happened in Maine this past week? there is definitely a mental health issue there when you're talking about hearing voices. We know that there are psychiatric or mental health conditions behind most mass shooters and perhaps even many murderers for that matter. Let's distinguish between those with psychiatric problems and somebody just having a mental health Episode. The term psychiatric disability is used when a psychiatric or mental health condition significantly interferes with the performance of, let's say, major life activities like learning, working, communicating, moving about, uh, driving, things like that. Someone can experience a psychiatric condition over many years. The type and intensity of symptoms vary. They come and go. They do not always follow a regular pattern. You can't always predict when something's gonna flare up. Sometimes treatment's recommended in full or partially or sometimes not at all. Sometimes the person follows them in full or partially or not at all. Um, They can be helped with medication, with therapy. Sometimes they can go into remission or not. There's all kinds of different episodes that can require treatment or not. The amount of support needed greatly varies. The common forms of psychiatric and mental health conditions are anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, bipolar disorders, schizophrenia disorders. These disorders, among others, can affect a person's employment, sleep, stress levels, education, and family life, among other aspects of their lives. Taking medication can cause even more problems because often there are side effects. Mental health episodes or issues, on the other hand, can include more common life type things like short-term depression treatable issues like being confused or having you know love life problems things like that they're usually short-term they don't interrupt your life in extreme ways where these problems can blur is where things become difficult sometimes family or friends do not recognize that a person is dealing with a much more serious condition an fbi study of mass shooters found that 25 percent of shooters had a true mental health illness while another 63 percent had a mental health stressor grant due A criminologist at Baylor University calculated that of 185 public mass shootings in America between 1900 and 2017, at least 59% were carried out by people with symptoms of a serious mental illness or by those who had been previously diagnosed with a mental disorder. Here are some conditions we can look at to figure out if mental health conditions are serious or not. So these are ways that you can look at your family member, your friend, Does this person have a real issue or is this a stressor? Do they have problems with maintaining personal or family relationships? Do they have problems functioning in social settings? Do they have difficulties performing at work or school? Are they not learning at a level expected of their age or intelligence? Are they refusing to participate in activities, very important activities to their life, or are they not functioning well while performing in those activities? Oh! These are also some proposals that were put forward by mental health experts to help us deal with gun violence and maybe bring gun violence down. Perhaps we should spend money to fund research agencies to study the causes of violence. We should spend money to fund research agencies to study the best practices to prevent suicide and help those in gun violence recover from trauma surrounding it. We should also ensure that procedures and restrictions related to legal firearm ownership do not discriminate unnecessarily against those with mental illness who show no signs of violence, No, as it's not going to help society anyway. We should also provide training to gun shop owners and workers and shooting range employees to help identify at-risk persons, to help identify someone who might be trying to either commit suicide or commit some type of serious mass violent gun crime. We should create a mechanism to allow persons with suicidal or violent intent should be allowed to voluntarily and temporarily surrender their firearms until such time as their situation is resolved. Yes. We should provide public education on the importance of safe gun storage in the homes. We should assure that all firearms, including all guns, have gun locks. They also want us to push the enact extreme risk protection order. They're called ERPOs. They are time limited and provide due process for the person having them done. Modeled on domestic violence restraining order laws, ERPOs avoid stigmatizing people with mental illness, and they are not focused on mental illness, but on whether a person's going to commit a violent crime. Some on the right fear ERPOs because they fear they could be used to take away some rights with guns. Ah. Here's my conclusion on all this after my research. I think the big problem is we do not recognize who has mental illnesses and who doesn't. And we are also moving away from our center as a society. 95% of mass shootings are perpetrated by men. They're done so mostly by empty males looking for something they cannot find somewhere else we are failing them. Most of the men have undiagnosed psychiatric disorders or hidden ones that the family even hides, does not want to deal with, knows it's there, but they're ignoring it, or that the government has ignored it or failed to deal with, like in Maine, or is open, but no one deals with it. They are only uncovered after the shootings occur. You're not going to uncover this in most studies, Most don't uncover true psychiatric disorders until it's too late. What we need is a change in our society. Ah. We must be willing to spend money as a society for medicine, doctors, infrastructure to treat these people. We must be willing to put these people away if necessary in hospitals or asylums. We must do what is best for all, not just for one. First, though, I'd make the point that when mass shootings occur, we should not publish information about shooters. We should not be encouraging violent and harmful behavior from others by making these people into some kind of celebrity yes the media has created more mass shooters than any other part of our society they overproduce headlines they put out photographs and different things about the shootings that make other shooters want to recreate those crimes yes they're martyring their victims their acts themselves provide the fame that most mass shooters crave and then they want to carry on similar acts We just need to stop making celebrities out of these mass shooters. This will decrease mass shootings in the future, especially at schools and other public places. It will stop young males who are seeking this type of publicity. It won't stop religious, political actions, other things like that, but it will stop the young males who are empty and looking for their heyday. And one additional point I would make is that the prevalence of guns has not changed much since the start of the 20th century, yet the amount of gun violence has. I do not have to say much more than that. This is proof that guns are not killing people, people are killing people. And that's where we come to the stances of the two parties. The Democratic Party is for gun control. They want to limit gun use. They want to limit the prevalence of guns. They want to stop the spread of guns. They want to somehow rein in and control guns. They definitely want to get rid of assault rifles and automatic weapons, that's for sure. The reason they haven't been able to do so is the influence of the NRA. That is the National Rifle Association. That group has been able to influence both parties. It's the most powerful gun rights organization probably in the world. Yes! And it's definitely the most powerful one in the United States. And they influence both parties. They're in the pockets of both parties. It's a political action organization. And they have been able to keep Democrats from taking away more gun rights. Now, on the other side, the Republicans are trying to push for people to be able to keep their gun rights entirely intact they're not necessarily pushing to expand gun rights they're trying not to let any more gun rights slip away and because of this you see the stalwart stalemate that we're at right now no one's pushing no one's budging and that's why there's not been much change and that's why every time there's a mass shooting you hear people scream on both sides about this or that and that's why we have to do something to change. And I have a few thoughts on this. I believe in the second amendment right to own guns, Yes, but not necessarily just any gun of any kind, but guns are not our main problem anyway. Instead, it's something intrinsic in our society that has changed. (gasps) People are indeed killing people. (gasps) Our movies are more violent. We even have violent music we now have very violent video games we certainly did not have in the 1960s. The latter could be the real problem as we drill down into the shooters and what they've said about themselves and what the family has said about them. They play these violent video games and sometimes go and enact them. But what about free speech? Do you take away everyone's rights to play violent video games just to deal with a few psychiatric people who have problems playing them it really turns back to society to change I think we need several approaches to fixing our gun problem we must be better towards each other first and foremost yes! we should regulate violent video games we must we must get better treatment for those with psychiatric disorders who show violent tendencies and encourage them to get treatment as friends and family and coworkers. We must be safer with our guns, gun locks, putting guns away, locking them away. We should encourage faith and therapy in our society, not hatred. And that, frankly, may be the number one thing. But what I think is foremost on the mass shooting aspect is if you find a family member, a friend starting to fantasize about violent video games, saying unusual violent things, posting threats on social media, threatening others, particularly groups or schools, acting out in violent ways, then you must get help for them. I gave you some subtle signs to look for earlier. If you don't act, if you don't do something, then it could be your life that you're giving up to hide a problem that we must deal with coming up next we profile a great american hero that many never knew had the impact on culture on society on america and even on the world that he had we will review the exciting life of one of america's greatest musicians who had the largest hand in spreading america's only true art form later we get into a conspiracy involving who may be controlling our president (coughs) stay here to find out in our honorary Weird Al tinfoil hat nut job hot off the presses segment and please let us know if you enjoy the program by hitting our like button or don't and I'll never know and I'll be hurt. No, anyway, just kidding. We'll be right back after this short musical break, so stay with us. We have really grown in listeners over the last week, and I really thank you for that. We would love for you to tell someone else about our program. If you love it, please share it. Send them a link or invite them to listen to the show. In this next segment, we will discuss one of America's greatest heroes, one that most don't even realize was a great hero. I happened to catch this documentary about him once that I am unable to find again. But in this doc, they demonstrated how much he helped change America over the 20th century. Changes that led to changes around the world. How did he do it? Well, his method was music and his style was love. In this week's Greatest American Hero segment, we profile none other than Satchmo. The legendary Louis armstrong the most influential jazz musician in history he was a legendary trumpet player actor and spokesman for the african-american community Louis armstrong tops the list of the most influential black musical artists ever he was the first black american to get featured billing on radio on film and eventually television his musical swinging vocal style that he formulated himself by the way during the Harlem Renaissance is what helped make him a star. But I will name the following musicians and see how many you know. Think about it for a second. Billie Holiday, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, B.B. King, Roy Hargrove, Trombone Shorty, Bing Crosby, Dizzy Gillespie, Eric Clapton, Wynton Marsalis, The Blind Boys of Alabama, Miles Davis, Tom Waits. All of these folks have personally said that his music was a direct influence on them and that he was one of their idols. He is credited with elevating the art of the jazz soloist, and the Smithsonian Institute calls him the first great jazz soloist. He even outplayed the Beatles once he may be the only man that ever really did. In late 1963, Armstrong and his all-stars recorded the title track for an upcoming musical called Hello, Dolly. The trumpeter didn't really expect much from the tune, but when the show debuted on Broadway the following year, it became a runaway smash hit. Even though the Beatles were soaring at this time, they had two songs in the very tops of the charts. Hello, Dolly passed... Both of them. And this was an absolutely astounding feat. At age 62, Louis Armstrong became the oldest musician in American history to have a number one song. Some of his other great hits included What a Wonderful World, Stardust, A Kiss to Build a Dream On, "Mac the Knife, Struttin' with some Barbecue, When You're Smiling, and all of me. But there are so many, I can't list them all here. I will tell you some background on me. I was a trumpet-playing kid. I'm also a music minor, I know a lot about music, I have a music background, my parents played music, I am a jazz musician as well, I played lead trumpet in several different jazz bands, and although I've had some significant health problems that keep me from playing like I once did, I do still get the chance to listen to a lot of jazz music, and I still listen to Louie. <gasps> I started my jazz collection out with a little yellow cassette tape with some of Lewis's greatest hits on it. And I still savor this cassette tape. I still have it. Robert O'Malley from the Columbia University Center for Jazz Study has said it all about Lewis the best when he said he was the person who codified what we now call jazz. He did, in a certain sense, what Geoffrey Chaucer did for English literature. But let's back up and tell Lewis's story. Lewis was born on August the 4th, 1901. Now, he always told people 1900, but... When they actually went back and checked he was actually born in 1901 in new orleans louisiana he was born in a very rough part of new orleans and he rarely saw his father growing up his mother was only 16 when he was born he would go periods of time without eating as a child growing up in abject poverty but during this time he befriended a jewish family the karnofsky's who gave him a little help up in life see it takes everyone working together to get along in life and they would give him food loan him money and even hired him to do odd jobs here and there. The Karnofskys even advanced him the $5 he needed to buy an old cornet from a pawn shop he wanted, though he did not know how to play it at the time. We don't really realize what that little $5 did for American history, (gasps) but we will soon figure that out. He dropped out of school at age 11 and formed a boys choir, did some little dances and things like that to make ends meet, but Lewis faced racism that most today wouldn't even understand don't even have a clue about. Grown black men would walk around being called boy and the N-word. They would be kept out of places. They would be told they couldn't eat here, or sit there, or go to this place, or be around this person. <gasps> they would have to stay back here or go there. He was a kid in this world where men of his race were not respected in the way that they deserved. And, trouble would come his way. On New Year's Eve in 1913, his life changed in a downward way. He was firing a pistol in celebration when he was arrested. He was sent to a place called the Colored Waif's Home because he was considered a juvenile delinquent. And at the time, most of the kids sent there didn't turn out the way Lewis eventually did. He joined the house band though, and they taught him how to play his old cornet that he had during his 18-month sentence. This small act would not only change the life of this man, but would help to change the lives of so many African-Americans across the United States over the next hundred years. He would lead the band marching and playing. Even though the people running the school never expected much of him or the young man working there, he expected much of himself. He was able to make the band excel enough that they were able to buy brand new instruments for the band. For Lewis, he was just getting started. He began to play with other professional musicians. Once he got out, he began to show his natural talent. He began to show his natural desire that he wanted to be the best. When he got money, he would buy recordings and try to try to mimic the professional jazz musicians he heard on there, try to mimic their style, try to mimic their riffs. He idolized these musicians, and he wanted to play like them. He was able to start to learn to play with power and precision and finesse at this point, and it began to impress some of the local best around. The person he wanted to impress the most was King Oliver. He took an odd job of delivering coal next door to where King Oliver possibly the greatest jazz musician in New Orleans at the time, would play just to hear him and his band. He idolized him. He got his record, sought to play just like him. Many do not realize that one of the greatest trumpet players of all time, Louis Armstrong, started out playing a cornet, which is not a trumpet. But it's like a trumpet. It's a smaller trumpet. It it just has a more mellow sound and it weighs less. And it's different to play, especially if you start out getting used to playing. Mm. But he became known as Satchelmouth which is just a way of talking about how he played the horn. Oh! He quickly adapted to the trumpet once he finally got one. Louis Armstrong got married in New Orleans and decided he was staying there. He wasn't going anywhere. He liked the jazz scene. He liked the the style. But soon, opportunities began to open up for him. He found playing music on riverboats going up and down the Mississippi River. And this is where he began to play for white audiences. And most of these white audiences had never seen black musicians before. They had never had them play for them before. And he would say that these white audiences seemed unsure of him, unsure of them at first. But as the concerts would progress and the music flows, they would come to love them. This, in essence, was Louis Armstrong. His music moved everyone who ever heard him. In 1922, he finally left New Orleans to play in Chicago and Harlem at the invitation of King Oliver his idol, the only man who could get him to leave. Many African-Americans were migrating from the South where there wasn't as much opportunity for them because of racism. They moved north to places like Chicago. This came to be known as the Great Migration. He really felt out of place there at first. He began to look around and he finally realized that he could fit in especially in king oliver's band where he played second trumpet this slowly increased his national notoriety as he began to play in not only chicago but new york and other places his second wife though as he had gotten remarried at this point was a pianist named lil hardin she thought he was way too talented not to have his own band in 1925 while armstrong was performing in new york she went behind his back and signed a contract with Chicago's Dreamland Cafe. She wanted to have him billed as the world's greatest trumpet player. Armstrong got back and realized what had happened and tried to get out of the contract, but something sucked him in. OK Records, as a part of the deal, was going to make recordings of him. And this was what Armstrong wanted. Between 1925 and 1928, he went on to make several dozen records with them. Some of these recordings would go on to to prove to the world that he was indeed not only the world's greatest trumpet player, but perhaps the world's greatest jazz musician as well. As Ken Burns aptly puts it on his outstanding documentary series Jazz, which was made in 2001, Louis Armstrong was simply, quote, the gift. Yes. The gift to jazz, the gift to music. These OK records have played a key role in establishing Armstrong as a legendary figure in the jazz community and in jazz history. By 1929, he was already one of the most well-known musicians in the world. He was playing before many white audiences now. Though some of these white audiences were unsure of having black musicians mix with them or play with them or play for them at first, (gasps) they were so moved after the concerts that he changed their whole view of race, sometimes in just one evening. And in this story, there are countless of them. I will give you just one example. Lewis was making an appearance in Austin, Texas on one October night in 1931 at the Driscoll Hotel. Some young white men, a group of them, had come down to hear this man build as the greatest trumpet player in the world, but really, they admitted later, they really went down to just find girls to dance with. Oh. One of the boys was named Charles, and he would later say that most of his encounters with black people up until this point He had been seeing them as servants in the roles of the caste system, where they just worked for people. This night, though, would be very different. This young boy would encounter the great Louis Armstrong, perhaps at the peak of his greatness. Charles would later say of this night about Armstrong's performance, quote, "...he had steam whistle power, lyric grace, alternated at will, even blended." Lewis played mostly with his eyes closed. Just before he closed them, they seemed to have ceased to look outward, to have turned to look inward to the world out of which the music flowed. He was astonished at the mastery and flat out genius of this music. This night changed his life. He began to look at black people, their culture, and music very differently than he had before. He had some musical background himself and could appreciate what Armstrong was doing, yet Armstrong blew him away. This is what else he said, quote, he was the first genius I had ever seen. The moment of first being and knowing oneself to be in presence of genius is a solemn moment. It is impossible the significance of a southern boy's seeing genius for the first time in a black man. This man, this Charles, is Charles Black, this young boy. He made a change in his life then and there that night. He went on to become a constitutional lawyer and was part of Thurgood Marshall's staff who wrote the legal brief for Linda Brown. Linda Brown, in case you don't know who that is, is the person who was in the landmark Brown versus Board of Education case. This case was the Supreme Court's case ruling that U.S. state laws regarding racial segregation in public schools was ruled unconstitutional, even if the schools proved their equality. Charles Black continued fighting for racial equality and justice until his death. Louis Armstrong, in one night, in one concert, without ever saying a word about social justice or civil rights, had created a civil rights proponent. This was the power of Louis Armstrong. He would go on to affect the world as well. During the 1930s and 40s, he began to sing more, which included scatting, a jazz style. During the 30s, he would make more appearances on film and radio. Though his bands usually played a more conservative style, Armstrong's dominant influence on the swing era was influencing other trumpet players to emulate him, to play with more dramatic structure, more melody, play with more of his virtuosity. himself developed his own music he was the first person in human history to be recorded playing off the beat playing behind the beat or changing the beat The first person in history to put it on a record. first person in history to be known as doing it on a record. Trombonists and saxophonists such as Coleman Hawkins and Bud Freeman and others after him modeled their styles on this. Above all else, his style, his swing style, his scatting, his virtuosity, and his ability to add something into an already recognized piece of music. Would literally change that piece of music into something else. If you take the song Stardust as an example, it influenced every jazz musician who followed him, all the way up to the great Willie Nelson. If you listen to Willie Nelson's version and you go all the way back to the 20s and you listen to Stardust, it's a completely different song. He was swing in so many ways. He could so freely and easily flow on his vocal style as well.
0: One, one, one. What wah wah
1: he became the most important influence on singers, from Billie Holiday, to Bing Crosby, to rock and R&B and jazz singers afterwards. He was the single greatest influence on music of the 20th century. Without Louis Armstrong, there's no Glenn Miller, who greatly influenced jazz and popular music after him. There's no Elvis Presley, and I don't even need to explain that one. There's no Chubby Checker. There's no Beatles. There's no Bee Gees. There's no Michael Jackson. Mm. Many do not realize he was the first crossover artist, too. He began to switch from pure jazz to singing pop standards in the 1930s, converting some to jazz, sort of jazzing others, and then adding his own thing and making his own music out of them. In fact, in many ways, he created his own music. You really need to listen to music before the 1920s. Listen to Armstrong's 1930s recordings. Then listen to Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Elvis, Buddy Holly, Fats Domino, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, Johnny Cash, and eventually Michael Jackson to realize Louis Armstrong's influence on music. Then he changed the world. According to the History Channel, during the height of the Cold War in the late 1950s, the U.S. State Department developed a program to send jazz musicians overseas. Armstrong was already known as Ambassador Satch for his concerts in parts of the globe, but in 1960 he became an official ambassador, Satch. He took off on a three month State Department tour across Africa. The trumpeter and his band, the All Stars, proceeded to take the continent by storm. In Accra, Ghana, 100,000 natives went into a frenzied demonstration when he started to blow his horn, the New York Times later wrote. One of the most remarkable signs of Armstrong's popularity came during his stopover in the Congo's Katanga province, where the two sides were at war in a secession crisis. But they called a one-day truce so they could watch him play, and he would later joke that he stopped a civil war from occurring. (gasps) He began to take civil rights and become more open about it during the 1950s. Up until this point, some had thought he should be more open, younger black activists, thought this. He was hurt by some of the things they said about him. Older black activists thought he was doing the right thing, what he was doing already. There were then some in the Klan who thought he was way too powerful and wanted to destroy him, wanted to take him down, wanted to figure out ways to, to bring down his power. There were not so many powerful black players in America who could do the things and make the changes that Louis Armstrong could. By the 1960s, as one civil rights leader put it, he was as recognizable to any American as Mickey Mouse. In fact, he may have been the most recognizable black celebrity or musician in America. Proof positive why this was important occurred in 1957. Some African-American leaders in the cause for integration had branded him an Uncle Tom because of his lack of taking a stance and which he was hurt by. But he saw his chance when President Eisenhower had not taken a strong stance over a segregation issue. At this time, a group of black students known as the Little Rock Nine were being prevented from attending an all-white school in Arkansas. When asked about the crisis, Armstrong went strong, talking about the sitting president of the United States and one of the greatest generals of World War II. He said, the way they are treating my people in the South, the government can go to hell. He called President Dwight D Eisenhower two-faced. He said, "The people over there talking about the USSR asked me about what's wrong with my country." Armstrong said, "What am I supposed to say?" He chided Eisenhower as having no guts for not stepping in and standing up to racists over the school segregation issue. He declared he would no longer play a U.S. government-sponsored tour of the Soviet Union. The comments caused a sensation in the media. Some white audiences even called for a boycott of his concerts. In other words, what we would call a cancel. Day. But Lewis had been working behind the scenes for years to build respect and relationships all across the board. He was respected by everyone. But the harshness of his words rang through. Some in the black community felt he had gone too far. Some black musicians especially thought he had gone too far. They thought that this was too much for him to speak out this way. Others in the younger civil rights community thought he had done the right thing. The controversy ended after Eisenhower sent soldiers to desegregate the schools in Little Rock. I feel the downtrodden situation the same as any other Negro, Armstrong would later say, of his decision to speak out, defending his right to do so. This is the first time he had been outspoken in this way. Some would criticize him for it, but I feel like he was very right to do what he did, that he was good to wait as long as he did to speak out. He said later, I think I have a right to get sore and say something about it, which is what he did. he waited for the right moment. When he felt like he could get something done, he did this. Behind the scenes, though, he was moving things along a lot more than most people ever knew. Joe Morani, his clarinetist, said he did more for civil rights than anyone else in history. Other civil rights leaders said he was an ambassador from Black America. And according to Will Freewald, he was... Quote, teaching white audiences about the black aesthetic. He was born into squalor and yet he recorded hundreds of records, performed in thousands of shows, appeared in more than 30 movies, and traveled and performed as an honored representative of the United States around the world. Armstrong influenced American society to integrate black culture in ways many never understood then and even now. Alas... Louis armstrong died on july the 6th 1971 in new york city a big hero to many musicians for his bravery to change music to push music into a new genre to push music into a new era but also for his bravery to change society in many ways that we may never understand fully after he died his home was turned into a museum over 60,000 items of jazz were collected in his home you can see that home and go to his museum in the corona queens area of new york an interesting tidbit after his death in 1988 his recording of what a wonderful world was released on the good morning vietnam soundtrack originally back in 1968 it performed poorly on the charts but the producer of the record did not like the record (gasps) which is why it had performed poorly he had refused to promote it it had reached number one in the uk though the song took off in the us in 1988 though and rose into the top 40 17 years after his death this song is now immortalized in the grammy hall of fame and is now recognized as one of the greatest american songs of all time but just like lewis it was not seen to be great at first but now we know he was a light to the rest of the world He was a light to all of us. He was a light of change. A change in how people see each other and a change in how people see society. Through his music, he brought us the colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky. You could see it on the faces. They could hear it, these people going by. He now sees friends shaking hands, when back in his day, they would perhaps not, saying, how do you do? But now because of him and his music, they're really saying, I love you. Next, stay with us for some fun as we delve into who could secretly or not so secretly be controlling our president. (laughs) What is happening with President Trump? He has... Had some gaps lately, Uh, uh, and we're going to look at this in some fun segments, so please stay with us. Thank you again for listening, and please let us know what you think by making comments about the program. You can go to Podbean or any of your favorite platforms where you find us to do so. Yummy! Don't pull those earbuds out. We'll be back. We have more great fun and information coming your way. You betcha. Stay here and stay close. Thank you for taking the time to spend a moment with us. I know you're busy, as American lives are really too busy, Ah! for your own good, probably. But I really appreciate you taking a moment to think, Mm? laugh, or Mm. just veg out with me. In our last couple of features this week, we will be a little more lighthearted than we have been. And we're going to take a look at our political leaders. And first, in our honorary Dan Quayle Uh! moment of the week, Trump may be pulling a Biden... (laughs) Former President Donald Trump was visiting a city in the Midwest this week. He was excited to greet his followers and took the stage to say, hello to a place where we've done very well, Sioux Falls. Thank you very much. The only problem was, Trump was 80 miles away in Sioux City, Iowa. He would not realize his mistake until a state senator whispered in his ear and corrected him. After he realized it, He went back to the mic and said, So, Sioux City, let me ask you, how many people come from Sioux City? How many people? How many? Who doesn't come from Sioux City? Where the hell do you come from? This mistake isn't going to cost him dearly, right away at least, but it may be chipping away at his nomination a little, as I alluded to earlier in my assessment of the election in Iowa. Haley is moving up here he has begun to mock her more, which is a sign she is moving up. DeSantis is the clear choice here now and has been for a while. Trump has spent a lot of money attacking him. The reason DeSantis could be chipping away in ways that we don't quite understand yet because of the way, again, Iowa does their caucus. These blunders have become much more frequent too. He has mercilessly picked on Biden for all of his gaffes, which I will say, biden makes a lot of gaffes there's a lot of errors biden makes and since trump ran against him the first time trump has done this a lot he has mocked him walking on stage he's mocked him with his demeanor he's mocked him with the way he makes his face but the gaffes from trump have increased recently here are just a few examples Uh-oh. in another speech a few weeks ago he appraised victor orban as quote the leader of turkey The only problem with this, Orban is the leader of Hungary. Uh. Oh, just a few miles away. (laughs) (coughs) During a summit in Washington, D.C., Trump told the crowd Biden could, quote, plunge the world into World War II. No. Well, while that is impossible, perhaps Biden himself thinks Trump is worried correctly.
0: (laughs) And finally,
1: during a rally in September, Trump got the Bush brothers mixed up. When talking about Jeb Bush, he incorrectly blamed him for getting us into the Middle East when he was talking about beating him. I'm not sure which row of hedges Trump is looking at, but he definitely got the wrong Bush. So Trump is making some mistakes, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has jumped on these mistakes. He started a Trump accident tracker on X, formerly known as Twitter. So... Trump's getting picked on now. Wow. DeSantis has acutely picked up on something though that should it gain traction could really help in his campaign. Pow. DeSantis has really pushed it. I think DeSantis is absolutely correct yes. and if DeSantis could get his messaging out there if he could get the messaging behind him I think could really make the point. This is what he said, quote, "This is a different Donald Trump than 2015 and 2016." He's lost the, the zip on his fastball. He told reporters recently, quote, he is wedded to the teleprompter. He can't get off that teleprompter. Anytime he does, he says things like, don't vote. He's telling people not to vote, like we have all the votes. Of course, people, they don't have the votes and Trump needs to watch what he says on things like that. Not just because it's the wrong message to send out, but because DeSantis is gonna jump on, Haley's gonna jump on it, and the Democrats are gonna jump on it. And all this is gonna be saved for the general election. Finally though, if anything, is gonna really change in this election. These gaffes must become more apparent or worse, as Trump is still the front runner right now and it isn't taking him down. (laughs) In a recent poll, 59% of respondents said they are worried about Biden's mental state. That's 60% of the country, folks. (laughs) Worried about our president's mental state. If we don't have something that should alarm us all, 60% of us are worried about our president's mental state, while only 34% say that of Trump. This is big because what independents and those moderate Dems and moderate Republicans say about our country is what will change and push this election one way or the other. But again, you never know. A few words one way or the other have changed elections before, and you never know, it could do it again. Next we get into our conspiracy theory this week, something wacky, something strange. Or could there be some truth in this? I'll let you decide for yourself as we look at our honorary Weird Al tinfoil hat nut job hot off the presses conspiracy theory of the week. And first we go back to July when Senator Chuck Grassley revealed that more than 40 FBI informants had criminal information about the Biden family. Now we do not know much about these informants. We know that they were tailing Obama. They were tailing the Bidens for a number of years, as much as 15 years back. And this is dating back to the time Biden was vice president. The Justice Department recently tried to say these sources were false or improper. They tried to say that there was some Russian interference involved. They also tried to delay the investigation into the Bidens. We do not know whether the FBI fully investigated these 40 sources or not, or whether they're legitimate or not. (gasps) It is possible that there is political bias infecting the FBI. Mm -hmm or possibly not. Uh A whistleblower is reporting that the FBI shut down information it was receiving about all the Hunter Biden problems, believing it was all foreign disinformation. But the FBI has not revealed whether this is true or not. There's a guy named Brian Otten at the FBI that everyone says is to blame for this. If it is true, he is the guy who has created the claim. Tim Theibault is another G-man with an ulterior motive that is possibly, as he closed the investigation into Hunter Biden because of pressure by someone in Baltimore. Further, Chuck Grassley says there is no evidence at the U.S. Attorney's Office of Russian disinformation. So the FBI is just making all this Russian stuff up. Therefore, they should have been investigating the Bidens further. They should have been taking these 40 sources seriously. They should have been looking into all this stuff because there is something up. Well, we now have another guy who is coming along, Charlie Kirk, a conservative commentator who can explain all this. He knows everything. He knows what's up. He says that the FBI has damning evidence about the Biden crime family Ah! and has not brought up charges against Biden because they are using it to control (laughs) Biden in such a fashion that it becomes, quote, blackmail, according to Kirk. Kirk has published all this on X, formerly known as Twitter. He has said, Senator Chuck Grassley has confirmed that since Joe Biden was vice president, the FBI has maintained over 40 confidential human sources providing criminal information on the Biden crime family. That's more assets and resources than the feds have working mob bosses. He has also openly questioned why they've investigated so much with so little repercussions. Uh, uh, That is, unless there's something else going on. And there could be. Kirk went on to suggest that the FBI is very fearful of him winning in 2024. That's why they were working to keep him from winning, and they are scared of him trying to destroy the Bureau during a second term in office. uh, They knew Trump would eventually destroy them for framing him, smearing him with fake dossiers and surveilling his campaign and administration, wrote Kirk. Firing Comey was the first shot across the bow. They'll know he definitely will do it again if he's elected again. Well, Kirk apparently knows everything because he went on to say the rogue FBI deserves every ounce of Trump's retribution. Ah! If they're not brought to heel, then we truly do live in a police state. Well, I know the FBI did something awful with the Clintons against Trump. I I know this, I'm telling you this as a person who sees into the political machine in Washington. Trump was an outsider with no political experience. The Clintons have their people in place and have had their people in place for years. This is a tough place, Washington is, and we have crooked politicians all over the place, on both sides, both the Republicans and the Democrats, both the left and the right. I am not sure about the FBI holding something, though, over our president's head, but I am sure that he is not making all the decisions up there. He is not all the time, anyway. No. It is about his age. He is just not all there. You can tell that by what he says. I have a 91-year-old cousin who is writing books and getting stuff done out there. He is very active. He goes places all the time, talking to the guy. He's just as sane and normal and knows everything about what's going on as anyone else. Yes. So it's not about age that I'm talking about. It's about a person's mental acuity, which goes and comes just depending on any person. I mean, you could have a 100-year-old person. My grandfather lived to be 100 years old, and he knew more stuff about what happened in the early 20th century than anyone else I knew, even at 100 years old. But this president just isn't there anymore. I think we need to bring in younger, more fit leaders. But time will tell, and the election is heating up. But is the FBI controlling him? Well, I'm not so sure about that, but you can make up your mind for yourself. And that is our show for today, folks. Thank you for joining us. We are on Podbean. We're on Spotify. We're on Amazon Music. We're on iHeartRadio, Player FM, Samsung Podcasts, Podchaser, and Boomplay. Please make a comment about anything you've heard on today's program. Give us a like or a love or a hug in the multiverse or just make it easy on yourself and hit that like button or perhaps think about us at work or tell your mom about us. (laughs) Hey, she might enjoy the program. You never know. Okay, well, that's enough. Well, we do greatly appreciate your feedback, though. Thank you again, Will J. Next week, we will talk about another great American hero who wound up bringing our country together after one of the worst wars in American history. Went on to be a hero to us in a most unexpected way. And in our poli-sci for the normal guy portion of the program, we'll talk about the census, how it affects our elections, and what the word gerrymandering means, and how it will affect us in the next election. Could it make the state of New York much more interesting? As always, we will have some fun and interesting segments looking at our current politics, a new segment called What's the Confection in Our Election, as we get closer to the Thanksgiving season. So please join us again next week. I am Craig Allen, your host. You have been listening to Lefty Lucy Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. Thank you again for joining us and for streaming or downloading this program. Join us again next week for another entertaining look into the world of politics.